If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther. We'll be in chapter 5. We're going to walk through the entire chapter, so verses 1 to 14. Esther chapter 5. It is found on the Bible in the chairs. It's found on page 436. And if you're visiting us this morning and do not own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. Esther chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. And if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Close and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, She gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her, whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request... May the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king asked. That day, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew standing at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, Have them build a gallows 75 feet high. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Many of us, if we look back on our lives, specific instances when God showed us favor, whether big or small, insignificant or important, point out ways to which the Lord showed us favor. Give one example. I graduated from college, 
Praise the Lord. <laughs> and after graduating from college, I've had a number of jobs, but there's only one time I had an actual job interview after college. Moved to Memphis in August of 2012. I applied to a number of places. Coming here to do the Emerging Leader Program, a downline. And, one, and we was going through orientation, and one of the days of orientation was actually at this uh, ministry that I applied for. And so I'm like, man, I know we're going to be there. I've applied for there. And so what do you think I did? I dressed up. Dressed up to the nines. I get there early. I'm like, man, I'm hoping that I can talk with a supervisor, making known that I filled out my application and hoping that I can secure an interview. Well, it turns out a number of the ELs did the very same thing, applied for the very open for the same thing. And so one of the supervisors, he comes, he makes known to all of us that they've received some applications, there are only a few jobs available, and that he will get in contact with us if they want to move forward. So I was like, oh, man. Go through the orientation at the end of the orientation, this supervisor recently hired a vice president, and out of nowhere, he just, he says, hey, you, just calls out the very end of the gym, hey, you, and I'm looking around, I'm like, talking to me? He said, yeah, come here, you, and so I make my way over there. He said, man, do you want to work here? making this much an hour, work this many hours a week. I was like, for real? He said, yeah, not even knowing my name. <laughs> not even knowing that I've submitted an application. This man just straight up asked me, hey, you want to work here this many hours, working this job? I'm like, for sure, absolutely. Got the job. Worked there a couple of years. And then, you know, in the Lord's providence, he's stirring up a desire for ministry. My mentor at the time, he, I was pursuing MTR. I was like, man, you know what? I really want to pursue pastoral ministry. And I was like, man, I'm going to try to go out there and do the residency. He said, don't do the residency. Do this job. Offer me a job. I go and meet with some parents. Wasn't an interview, just a, a lunch. And next thing you know, I was offered the job. I'm like, oh, wow, praise the Lord. Same thing with the internship in Alexandria, Virginia. Just talk to the senior pastor. I'm like, hey, where do I apply? He said, uh, I'm application pretty much. It's like, all right, you in. That was it. And so, like, and then we planted a church. Didn't have to interview for a job then. <laughs> but it was crazy, though, because it's like, man. Um, and I can't brag about that at all. Like, in fact, I wouldn't even recommend those guys to do that very same thing again. I'm like, man, hey, you should interview people to see to it that they are a proper candidate for the job and the right person. And yet, the Lord, in his kindness, showed me a ton of favor in these ways. And if we were to go around, which we won't do, but if we were to go around and ask you guys, what are some specific ways that you can remember how the Lord showed you kindness, how the Lord gave you favor, I'm certain that you can point out many examples to where you would say, like it's said in Psalm 124, and like it is said by the saints of old, if it had not been for the Lord, who was on my side, where would I be? 
in this morning's passage, we will see Esther from a wicked king where she was fearful of death. She's granted life. And she didn't coerce it. This is the Lord at work. To where Esther can say, I've been for the Lord who was on my side. Where would I be? So our big idea for this passage is this. Be humble and trust God for favor and fruit. Be humble and trust God for favor and fruit. This passage, we break it up into two points, and two points will be exhortations. First, entrust yourself to God. Second, be satisfied in God. Entrust yourself to God and be satisfied in God. So last week, we saw how the, and the Jews responded to the edict of their annihilation. They wept. They lamented. Mordecai began to speak through a eunuch insisting that Esther would intercede on behalf of her people. They go back and forth. At the very end of the chapter, Esther was convinced that she should go to the king. She called for a three-day fast, and she committed herself to going before the king, even if it would cost her very life. This morning's passage picks up the story, and first, we entrust ourselves to God. Look at verse 1. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothes and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtyard facing its entrance. So the fast had ended. I believe they sought divine intervention as they fasted. Oftentimes prayer is included in fasting, pleading for God to intervene. And during those three days, Esther has devised a plan. And here she's about to execute it. She wore royal clothing, put on the best dress, pampered herself with cover girl, seeking to help herself the king without a warning, which in chapter four, chapter 4, verse 11, makes known that this is a transgression according to Persian law that only very few had access to the king without summoning, being summoned, and Esther wasn't one of the few. And so she risked, and here, Esther walked by faith. She sought God, she trusted God, and she began to act, knowing that her life isn't ultimately determined by her husband being the king, but ultimately determined by God. And here we see what it looks like to walk by faith. You seek God, you trust God, and you work. Beloved, we are saved by faith alone. When we trusted in Jesus, an alien righteousness has been imputed to us, to where we stand justified before God. We're saved by faith alone, and we live 
by faith alone. Now, as we live by faith alone, walking by faith doesn't mean that you be idle. It doesn't mean that you do absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean that you don't pray and pursue and then make a plan. But instead, what it does mean is that you do these things through God while having open hands to the results. Committing ourselves to Jesus and his ways, believing in him, and faith leads to action. We seek God and we act. And that's what we see Esther did. And look what happened. Standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. This is favor. This is favor. Here, Esther is receiving kindness from her husband, who's the king. She has broken Persian law, and yet she receives grace. He displays a fondness towards her, granting her life amidst the threat of death. There was no axe for Esther's head. Instead, there was a gold scepter for her hand. And not only that, the king asked her what it is that she wanted. Knowing that she's risking her life for a reason, he asked her, what is it that you want? And not only that, he gave her a promise. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to idiom of generosity. So he's not literally promising her half the kingdom. But what this is, is a disposition of generosity towards her. The very same thing Herod did towards his stepdaughter in the Gospels. So he has this disposition of generosity. He gives a definitive statement, making known pretty much whatever you want, I'm going to give it. He pretty much wrote her a blank check and told her to name the price. And did you catch that the promise preceded the petition? The king announced the promise not after Esther said something, but before she uttered a single word. Not only was Esther granted life, but she was granted life and some. Favor being multiplied. And the question is, how does this happen? Well, it's certainly, certainly not luck. It's not open to chance. The reality is, whether you know it, the theological beliefs behind them. And the belief is that there is no God. So they're as theological as divine sovereignty. They're just atheistic in nature. But for us, we know not only is there a God, we know that he is sovereign over all things that this is our Father's world, that he is in complete control. His sovereignty is pervasive as it extends over every inch of creation. He governs the world with wisdom. This is what it means for providence. It is his wise governing. And beloved, it is a faulty view 
to believe that God created the world and he is distant and careless towards his creation, that he never intervenes. You do not get that conclusion from revelation, but from assumptions. Because when you open up your Bible and study it for yourself, you see that God not only loves us and cares for us, but he's also meticulously involved in all of creation and small to accomplish his purposes. We read in the scripture reading Isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 and 10, remember what happened long ago for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago would take place and I will do all, all, all my will. There is no man, woman, politician, or king who can prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. All of our breath is in his hand, including kings. A king's heart is in the hands of God. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. There's no exception, not even this king. And beloved, God is as sovereign today as he has always been. And that is good news for all of us who are in Christ. That reality should lead to rest and peace in all things. Because the God who reigns over everything in Christ is our Father which means he always loves us, which means in every situation he is always for us. And so we can trust him in all things. Beloved, we see that Esther, she was shown favor, and favor ultimately belongs to the Lord. Now, since we know that favor belongs to the Lord, how much more about our evangelism? How much more should we be on our knees praying for the Lord to intervene since we know that favor comes from him? It doesn't mean don't strategize, but it does mean to seek him all the more. Put more hope not in your strategy, but in the God who gives favor. Look at verse 4. She says, if it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. Here she responded with a request for a banquet. And this is very shrewd of Esther because she knows her husband. She knows that her husband loves a good party. Think about chapter one. The first five verses we read of two parties. One lasted six months and another one lasted a week. Think about chapter 2, after Esther becomes queen, what does he he do? Throws her a party, a banquet. And so what she does is very shrewd. She requests for Haman, who's second in command. This could be to put to rest any sort of suspicion. But listen to what she said. She said, a banquet that I have prepared for them. She has already put in the work. She hoped for favor. She, the reality is, beloved, as we seek God for favor, that doesn't mean that we be lazy. Because God is not opposed to effort. 
we seek the Lord, we pray, we ask God to do what only he can do, and then we act. In the midst of the wickedness of chattel slavery, it was former slave and Christian abolitionist Frederick Douglass who said, I prayed for freedom for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Beloved, we are to seek the Lord and we labor in faith. You see, our faith is to lead to works. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. You'll see by faith, by faith, by faith, and next thing you know, you're going to see some sort of action. Think about James chapter 2. It says, show me, I will show you my faith by my works. So we plead for the Lord to intervene, and then we work by faith. We know that God can do it apart from our effort, but we know that his normal way in work in and through us. Think about this. You know, you don't pray to grow spiritually mature and then be passive and wait as if God is just going to do it. No, you pray and then you put forth effort to grow in Christ, pursuing the means of grace. We don't pray for boldness and evangelism and then just be passive and quiet all the time. No, you pray and then you open your mouth trusting that God will embolden you. You don't pray for a healthy marriage and then be passive and do absolutely nothing and think that your marriage is just going to be amazing. No, you pray for it and then you put some feet behind that faith and begin to love and serve your spouse. Beloved, the reality is we don't live with this let go and let God. But instead, we pray and pursue these things by faith. Grace-driven effort because grace enables and infuels effort. So we walk by faith and we entrust ourselves to the Lord as we do things. Now, I want to make it very clear. Putting forth faithful action. And entrusting ourselves to God doesn't guarantee that God will give the desired results. It doesn't put God in our debt. Instead, we have open hands taught us, your will be done. Think about Esther in chapter 4. After she called for the fast, what does she say next? If I perish, I perish. Meaning she didn't know how it would go. And we're to have the very same outlook, seeking God, trusting God, walking by faith, leaving the results to him, submitting to his sovereign will. And there will be times where his plans for us are completely different than our plans for us. Whether it be a relationship, don't work out. Not able to have children. You don't get the job that you are hoping for. The healing doesn't come even though you fervently prayed for it. And at times, they will perplex us, but it is those very moments that we have to remember that God is good and that he is trustworthy. Pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, we must trust and trust ourselves to God. We entrust knowing that what he wills is good, even if it is different from what we desire. 
So in verses 5 to 6, the king conceded to her request. They get Haman, go to the banquet. They're having a really good time. And he asked her once again, what is it that you want? He still maintains this favorable disposition towards her. In verse 7 and 8, you see Esther's response. It says, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. And so she began to make her request known, and then she flipped the script. She concealed it, being very methodical in what she did. So shrewd, I'm not even sure the king caught it. Because what she did here is she sought a commitment to her petition through the king RSVPing for the next banquet. So what this means is what she is saying is that a yes to the banquet is a yes to my request. Here she's sticking with the plan. And God is actively at work. Chapter 6, you'll see that he acquiesced to this plan, which means this puts him on the hook, publicly making known that he'd do it. And so he can't backtrack now or save face. Here, Esther, she receives favor once again. And here, God is actively at work as he is the main character in this story. You don't see his name, but you see his works. He is working behind the scene, and his works are becoming more and more apparent. And as we read the end of the book, we will see that God worked in such a way that deliverance came from the least likely place. It came through a Jewish woman in a society that belittled and devalued women. Deliverance of the Jews will come through a woman. Remember Esther chapter 1, that edict that all the women were to unreservedly obey their husbands? A woman being belittled in this culture, and it would be a very, that very same woman who God would use. And not only that, it would be a Jewish woman. Haman recently convinced the king to annihilate for his people. God is so sovereign, and in his wisdom, he chooses and uses the least likely that he alone may be glorified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29, God chose what is foolish in the world and the strong. God chose what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. And he's doing this that he alone may get the glory as we read this, it can be easy for us to just be enamored and in awe of God, which we should be. To sit on the edge of our seats and just be amazed at what God is doing. And as we do that, we could also fall into the temptation of thinking that these mighty works that God does is just a thing in the past. To belittle his works in the present to even belittle his works in our own lives, to make light of our salvation. 
And the reality is, beloved, our salvation in Christ is an amazing work of God. It is no less significant. In fact, it is more miraculous when you think about it. Don't belittle God's saving work in your life because what he did is so amazing. Think about this. We were under the just condemnation of death for our sins against a holy and righteous God. And the king graciously came. It wasn't that we approached him, it's that he came down for us. And lowered than the angels made, tasted death for all the chosen, faced the cross, endured the shame. That's what our king has done for us, showing us favor unimaginable that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us, spared our life by sacrificing his son, not merely giving us half of the kingdom, but giving us Christ himself and making us co-heirs with Christ in his glorious kingdom. This is a work of of grace that God has done for us in Christ. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us that we can entrust God, entrust to God ourselves in every situation. The cross of Jesus Christ is the biggest and greatest proof that we can trust God in every situation. The very fact that we've trusted Christ to save our souls means that we can trust him in our greatest need was salvation in Christ, and God accomplished that. And so we can entrust God with every single lesser need, every last one of them. So may we entrust ourselves to him. Going to our second point, be satisfied in God. Look at verse 9. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Haman left the party on cloud nine, feeling good, feeling great. And in an instant, all of it changed because he encountered Mordecai. And it wasn't merely because he encountered Mordecai, his disposition changed because how Mordecai responded to Haman. Mordecai was unfazed, didn't show him any honor, and wasn't horrified by the reality that an edict has come into place and he was the one who made it happen. Mordecai was completely unfazed and boy did it phase Haman. The question is, why? A sudden change. Well, I believe it's because Haman didn't get the very thing that he idolized, honor. As you read throughout this book in chapter 3, Haman is exalted to second command. Haman's upset that Mordecai didn't honor him. He's happy when the honor is present. Think about being invited to the banquet, being invited to the very next banquet, which he began to boast also hot when that public recognition is absent. And here God is sovereignly at work exposing Haman's idols for us to see. 
God always uses everything and every situation to reveal what is in us. Think about a bad traffic jam. How do you respond? You're probably hot as Haman was. What God is doing there, exposing what's going on in your heart. Think about the need to cancel some plans that you were really looking forward to. Being frustrated and despairing over it. God is using that to reveal what we're actually hoping in. Parents, think about the times when your kids are sick and so they are so needy that you can't get that little moment of reprieve or have your me time that we want. How do we respond? Frustrated, disappointed, mad. And in those moments, God is actively at work exposing what is in us. He thought highly of himself and demanded that everyone else would think highly of him. This desire ruled his heart. And this happened because God has created us to be worshipers. Worshipers of him alone in such a way that we won't worship him. The reality is, beloved, someone or something will reign on the throne of your heart. The question is, who or what will reign? Will it be God or an idol? Let me address the children in the room. Children, idols are real, and they are anything that you exalt over God. Anything that you think is more important than God, that is an idol. And the second command God tells the children of Israel to not bow down to any idols because he alone is the greatest. Everything that you enjoy, God created, which means God is better. So children, my prayer for you is that you would love and cherish Jesus with your whole heart. Because he is infinitely and eternally greater than anything he has created. For us, beloved, it could be easy for us to look down on Haman as we see his idols on full display. Struggle with idols. John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. And one way for us to assess whether or not we have idols, is to think through this. If you would sin to get it, or sin to keep it, or if you would respond with sin when it is absent, that is an idol. And for Haman, it was public esteem. Not merely power, but the very thing that came with power. Beloved, what is it? For you? Is it power? Control? Acceptance? Pleasure? What is it that you just absolutely have to have? Not enough, but you need God and that. What is it for you? Beloved, whatever that is, just know that it will not lead to life. 
but to a world of hurt and destruction. I'd employ you to turn away from it, knowing that Jesus is better. Look at verses 10 to 13. It says, Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described to them his glorious wealth, his many sons. He told them how the king honored him, promoted him in second rank. He talked about how Queen Esther invited no one but him to join the king, and that he's invited again to the next banquet. Here Haman gets his closest people, and all he does is brags about himself, his prosperity, posterity, his position and prestige. He looked to these things as his identity and his level of importance. He's reeking with pride. And that very pride will be the cause of his downfall because God opposes the proud. Beloved, pride is ugly. And we all know it. Nobody likes to be around the most prideful people. But humility, God, is, man, when you're around someone who's humble, you want to keep being around them because it's encouraging. Humility is godly. Humility is having a right view of yourself before God in light of his greatness. It is to know that we are not great, but only he is great. And so it's to boast and brag in nothing and no one else but him alone because everything we have is a gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who see anything different in you? What did you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We boast in God alone. But here we see Haman boasting in his possessions and all that he had. And he went on and on and on, and yet it didn't satisfy him. For he says in verse 13, still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. It didn't satisfy him because it won't ever satisfy. You want, and what you will still want is more. Think about John D. Rockefeller one of the wealthiest Americans have ever lived, and when he was asked about his money, how much money is enough, he said, just a little more. Won't satisfy because they weren't made to do so. We weren't made for these things. We were made for God. The very God who loves us, who created us, made us, that we may have a relationship with him that he alone may satisfy us. It was Augustine who said, you made us for yourselves. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. There is a God-sized hole in all of our hearts, and absolutely nothing will ever be able to fill it but God alone. One could attempt to fill it with pleasure, riches, status. Ecclesiastes would say that it is merely chasing after the wind. That is drinking salt water, trying to quench your thirst. Let me address the non-Christians in the room. Friends, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, if you are honest with you that absolutely nothing in this world satisfies you, if you were to get everything you wanted, 
you would still want a little more. You're not satisfied with what you have now. And the very reason that is the case is because God made you for a relationship with him. You won't be satisfied by creation. You'll be satisfied by the creator. And that very God loves you and sent his son to die for sinners. Sending his son, Jesus bore the sin on the cross, rose from the grave, and if you trust in him, you will be satisfied in such a way that nothing in this life, nothing in this world can nor ever will be able to do for you. I implore you this very day to trust in Christ. That is the only way you'll be satisfied. Only God can truly satisfy us. This is revealed in Scripture. Psalm chapter 4, verse 7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even as we see in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. He satisfies us not merely with things but with himself. For there is no one greater than him, and so he has given us himself by giving us his son. As Christians, we know these things, and yet daily we need to renew our minds and mortify our flesh because our flesh is never satisfied. Our flesh will seek to deceive us to thinking that this will, not God. Finding satisfaction in Christ is a daily spiritual battle where you deny your flesh, pursuing the means of grace, fighting to delight in Jesus, striving to be happy in Jesus, meditating on his glory and his goodness and rehearsing the gospel of Christ. That is how we be satisfied in God, killing our flesh, feeding our souls God's word and reminding ourselves the love of Christ knowing that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Look at verse 14. It says, his wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Go to the banquet, enjoy yourself. And the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows constructed. Here we see unbiblical counsel. They pretty much told Haman, don't eliminate your idol, eliminate your enemy. Construct this gallow that was so high that you could hang him on it, publicly humiliate him before everyone, making known that if you ain't going to exalt me, you're going to be executed. And it's to no surprise that Haman loved this counsel. As he's constantly exalting himself. He will learn that the Lord humbles those who exalt themselves. The irony of this is that Haman hung 
from the very instrument of death he constructed for Mordecai. He exalted himself and he would be hung high. As we're familiar with the story, and as sweet as that is and as encouraging as that is, we also know that that's not always the case every time. Because over 400 years later, from this text, God condescended, becoming a man, being humble, sinless, hated by his enemies. You know what happened to him? He was hung high on of the cross is that it was an instrument of death constructed by these men, and it was the same instrument that God would use to bring about our redemption and life. They considered Jesus a curse, and what Jesus did was that he bore the curse on our behalf. In the providence of God, the cross was God's plan of salvation for sinners. It would be the only way that he would save us. And y'all, what a display of grace that God would ordain Calvary to give you and I life. Rebels, enemies who were prideful and arrogant, yet God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. that he may reconcile us to himself and make us his family. Beloved, God has been so gracious. It is to humble us till we look to him knowing that we are filled in him alone. Beloved, as I began the sermon, I said, think about the number of ways where you have been favored by God. Well, I can tell you the greatest way that all who are in Christ have been favored by God. It was by him sending his son. It was by his son dying for you and I. It was by him granting us life in Christ Jesus, writing our name in the book of life, securing our redemption and sealing us with his spirit knowing that one day we will be with him in his kingdom. Beloved, you are favored by God. And there's nothing that you and I have done in and of ourselves to secure it, but because God has loved us and chose to show us grace. The gospel should humble us and cause us to boast in Christ alone. May we be a people who boast in the Lord. Let's pray.